Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. If you're living overseas as an Aussie expat, or perhaps you're planning on moving overseas in the near future, in the short term, well, you're in luck. We're talking all things global tax, financial advice, mortgages, all the good stuff for Aussie expats. I'm speaking with James Ridley from Atlas Wealth. Atlas Wealth and the team have helped so many My Millennial Money listeners all over the world. They've got expats in over 45 countries and they've got a specialist team that work with people just like you. And before we keep going, special mention to Global X who help us bring you every episode every Thursday. Did you know that in 2022, there were 43 new ETFs launched in Australia? Wow. You can read about what these funds are by downloading Global X's Australian ETFs landscape report. It covers what's been happening out there and it could help you be a better informed investor. Head to globalxetfs.com.au forward slash MMM to download your copy today. And there's a link in the show notes if you want to do that. So thank you, Global X, for getting behind my millennial money. James, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Glenn. Thanks for having me. All right, let's get it on. James, you specialize in money for people who have departed Australia, dearly departed, or those maybe coming back and repatriating uh, back into Australia. There's lots going on. You know, last time we were talking about the residency exemption and some changes that might be happening, might not be happening. Just give us the 101 on a couple of main things, bread and butter that you just want people to know right now. Yeah, of course, Glenn. One of the main ones that was legislated uh, as of June 2020 was the main residence exemption being abolished for Australian expats. Now, again, Australian expat, it's an Australian citizen that's living, working overseas, but is now a non-resident for tax purposes. There's often a bit of confusion there. And if you are selling your former main residence, whilst a non-resident, you do have to pay capital gains tax on that sale. Now, formerly, that would have been a tax-free transaction, but now that they're a non-resident, it's not. Right. So, there could be a bit of planning involved before you depart. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's incredible how many people we still talk to that are thinking about selling their main residence and they've been overseas for years. Mm. And when we walk through the sort of initial phase and educate them on the tax they might have to pay, they're gobsmacked. Mm, Yeah. Now, you said something interesting there, like when you are leaving Australia and you're no longer a tax resident, it's important for this discussion to actually outline what is and isn't an expat. We had some questions there. People, I'm traveling for 12 months or I'm going overseas for Mm. 10 months. Um, Just talk to about maybe more permanent and less permanent time away from Australia? Yeah, it's a good point. And often if we're only heading overseas for say 12 to 18 months, I wouldn't classify you as an Australian expat. Our definition of someone that is making a permanent move 
minimum two years working overseas, uh, they are and do have the intention of declaring themselves as a non-resident of Australia. And there's pros and cons of that. Uh, I think the first one is a case where the ATO is not going to get to tax you on your overseas wage income anymore. But that's how we define an Australian expat. Someone that's heading over temporarily uh, for 12 months, that's not an expat. They're going on a holiday. Yeah, cool. And we will talk to, you know, some of the questions for the shorter timeframes just for completeness. Now, are there any traps that you see people fall into uh, when they do take off and become an expat uh, that you just see time and time again or some myths that you just want to dispel for people? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think um, zooming out, there's three phases or stages of an expat when they're just about to head overseas whilst they're overseas and obviously returning repatriation. When you're first heading overseas, you do need to look at your assets, look at your income, look at how everything's set up and structured and know that with you heading overseas and no longer being an Australian tax resident, what does that do to everything that you're leaving behind? You know, this includes insurances, this includes investment properties that maybe are positively geared, um, private health insurance, Medicare, tax. If you're already investing in shares, that's great. Um, What does your non-residency do to those shares? Have you considered whether you need to maybe look into what's called deemed disposal? The platform that you're using to invest, is that comfortable with you being a non-resident in in that new country? There's a lot of share brokerage platforms, robo-investment platforms that don't like you being overseas and being a non-resident. They don't know how to look after you anymore. And it actually usually comes down to uh, common reporting standards with the United States, surprisingly. Mm. I think a common one is hex debt. Yeah, talk to us about hex and help because I remember last time we did this episode, there was a question about it. So let's talk about it at the very top of the episode. What happens if someone is an expat and they've got hex and help debt? Yeah, so... We still need to repay it. Uh, We can't escape it. Um, They changed that legislation back in 2017. Mm. And what it means is uh, probably best to provide an example. Yeah. So if we're heading over to the United Arab Emirates, it's a tax-free zone. Um, We're being paid in dirhams linked to the US dollar. We might be on a very juicy income level, maybe 200,000. There's no tax coming out of that, but you are still required to do a hex lodgement with the ATO each financial year. So you still have to make a hex repayment um, to the ATO. And it does mean that there is technically this hidden tax if you still have a a hex debt. So would they effectively say your income, whether it's taxable or not, whether you're in the UK, the US, UAE, if you earned $150,000 or $100,000, you have to report that amount back to the ATO and then effectively they will want to bill you. Absolutely. They calculate a set percentage. There's different tiers depending yeah. on your... Which are, Yeah. So those tiers are the same as if you were a resident and your work was withholding... 100%. Excel. Yeah. Absolutely. And and that's where a lot of expats originally think if they're heading overseas, they don't need to pay it back or anything like that. But you definitely do. And there's a lot of time where someone has been overseas, they haven't done a tax return or any sort of lodgement for three, four, five years and they forget. And then, you know, there sometimes can be some fines, 500 bucks up on the wrist, but you've also got a fair bit of repayments to catch up on as well. Yeah. So if we took that further and someone did leave Australia as a tax resident and they were overseas, doesn't matter what country, and it was for five years and they didn't pay back or report their income to the ATO, when they came back and repatriated, if they came back online with the ATO, there could be a please explain what happened the last five years 
and then Absolutely. they will start investigating that. So there is a risk there. A big risk. And I mean, one thing that we drive home with our own clients right now when they're first leaving is, okay, as soon as you get overseas, soon as you've got your new permanent residential address, jump onto your MyGov, update the ATO service, update your Medicare, just so the ATO has that little nudge, you know, yep. to know that you're overseas, but also don't stick your head in the sand. Mm-hmm. You are required to do your annual lodgements. If you've got hex debt, there is a repayment there. You can't escape it. When you're doing a hex lodgement and you're using an account, there's technically three methods they can use. They can use just a simple method, your, your wage income essentially, or your worldwide income, and then that calculates the repayment. There's then a standardized deduction you can use based on your occupation category. And then the last one is essentially almost doing a tax return. It's not paying tax, it's just paying your hex back though. So just bear that in mind. Yeah, so would it be fair to say if I uh, left Australia as a permanent tax resident here in Australia or a tax resident and went overseas, and even if I was an Australian citizen and I didn't have HEX or help debt, I would not need to notify the ATO of my income while I'm abroad. Not at all. The ATO does not care about the income and the wealth that you generate whilst you're abroad as a non-resident. It's mainly around the HEX debt. We would still encourage doing a non-resident lodgement to say, hey, I'm still overseas, um, just so nothing happens. And, And is that just more housekeeping, particularly if it is a short term or a not forever thing. Like if, yeah, we'll do 10 years, because I've got friends, they did 10 mm. years in uh, the UK, they came back. But if it is a permanent thing and we're leaving Australia, see you later, you might make the call not to worry. Like what What do you think there? Yeah, it, it is more housekeeping. It's yeah. just good tax compliance. So in the event your circumstances change, you're coming back to Australia, you don't get a funding letter from the ATO. Mm. But on the other side, as you said, if you know you're never coming back to Australia, you can declare yourself as a non-resident with an accountant and you can essentially nominate return not necessary going forward. Yeah, cool. Bearing in mind, if you've still got assets back in Australia, that's not really possible. That's right. And we will get into that. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, this is such a an interesting episode when we have these chats. I want to point everyone over to your website because we'll move on into the questions now. But if you go to atlaswealth.com, and we'll definitely put a link in the show notes, James and the team, they've put together an Australian expat departure checklist. They've got a pre-departure checklist. So everything, like what you've done there, feels like I'm flying somewhere. (laughs) Okay, what movie is this from? Why are you going to the airport? Flying somewhere? (laughs) I've got no idea. All right. How old are you? (laughs) 33. Yeah, that'd be right. Too young, mate. Too young. Anyway, everyone, those who know, know. Um, But you've got a pre-departure checklist on your website. People can you know, download that. That's right. And then you've also got a repatriation checklist. That's right. And I mean, the, I mean, the pre-departure checklist, it does give you guys some homework before you're heading off. It's, it's essentially wrapping up financial affairs, even general life admin before you go, things that yeah. you don't even know to think about. And if you can work through that list and pretty much check every box, we would classify that as a very successful uh, expatriation. And then you've got a post-departure checklist. Yeah, exactly. So once you're over there and you're set up, yeah. things that you need to look back, probably back in Australia and just some final life admin to take care of. Yeah. So I'm not going to read them all because they're a big list, but some of the things on the pre-departure checklist, you know, power of attorney, join the expat community groups. That's awesome. Mm. Banks and share registries, private health, Medicare, insurance, investments, like it's literally a a checklist and 
if you get anything from this episode today, it's a it's a cool little one-stop, one-click checklist. That's right. Yeah. Absolutely. Work through it if you are about to head abroad or even if you've been overseas for, say, the last 12 months. Yeah. It's a really good starting point for you to go back and go, have we done these things mm-hmm. to make sure we're set up compliantly with whether it's the Australian government, the ATO, uh, Medicare, even insurance. The private health insurance one's an important one. Most people know to put that on hold. And we don't like to say cancel. Usually mm. you can contact NIB or whoever. Um, freeze it. Freeze it. it. Yeah. Freeze it up to, I think, somewhere you do it for 36 months. That's great because when you do come back, everyone forgets that if you get a new policy set up, you could accidentally have that lifetime health cover loading applied. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So this stuff, you know, a bit of planning can really help um, save your dollars. Mm. Just on the insurance thing, if someone was going to be an expat for two or three years and they already had life insurance in their super here, would you be inclined to leave that as is as opposed to cancelling it here and getting life insurance in the destination country? Yeah, it's it's a good question. Some insurance providers in Australia um, will actually provide cover whilst you're overseas. A lot of the insurances within super, um, they are default insurance or general and they're not great. Um, they're just automatically loaded on there and I'm not going to put crap on those insurances, but I've seen terrible outcomes from clients having them. Yeah. So we don't encourage them. So usually we'll try and do a bit of an insurance review to consider whether it's valid or not with them heading overseas. If not, then we'll hand it over to someone like uh, Phil Thompson. Right, from Skywealth, who That's works right. with the podcast here. Yeah, yeah. So it's just another thing in the checklist as part of the discussion. And before we get to Bronte's question about investing... Just tell us a little bit about the type of clients that you're personally working with and your firm. Yeah, great question. So a lot of our clients are professionals. They're working, whether it's in the US, Singapore. I mean, my personal clients are the Asia Pacific and the Americas. And a lot of my clients, they're in the the tech sector over in the US, Uh, I suppose oil and gas. Um, solicitors, some doctors, not as many as you'd think, teachers, nurses are working abroad. So a very vast, I suppose, occupation categories, um, but all earning relatively okay income. um, And it's more so a case that they know that they're going to be overseas for a minimum, say, of three years. Mm -hmm. And they want to make sure they're doing something back in Australia to be able to show something for their time abroad. Um, That's a really good starting point. And then probably another layer to that is I've got a lot of clients that are over 50. They know they're coming back to Australia in the next five to 10 years. They haven't thought about retirement and now they're sort of hitting the oh crap button. I've got to start planning because I want to retire at 60 or earlier, but all my assets are overseas and I haven't even thought about how to repatriate these assets and shoehorn them into our system back Mm -hmm. in Australia. So Bronte's question is, is there any implications on being paid overseas and continuing to invest in shares in Australia using an Australian platform? Should I just save the money and continue when I return? Now, you did touch on this at the top. For me, like when I, and people have asked me all the time and I'll just bounce this off you, like when people say like, what should I do with my investing? I'm living in London, I'm living in America, I'm living wherever. I'm almost of the view that if it's a permanent thing, set up your life where you're planning to live permanently. It's it's probably one of the first clarifying questions I ask when I'm having either a new consult. I'll say, are you coming back to Australia mm. or are you staying over there permanently? Mm. And honestly, if you've got no intention of returning back to Australia and you can say that 
100%. Set up camp, where are you going? Absolutely. Yeah. Look at all your local um, concessionary tax vehicles over there, the retirement system, property, everything. And mm. that's how you should set up your, your life. If you know you have an intention of coming back to Australia or there's a bit of the fear of the unknown, then probably you should do something back in Australia with investing. Mm. But it's just getting the right product that works while you're overseas. That's right. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a good one. Okay, Kylie has a question. What are the tax implications working overseas if you have an investment property in Australia with negative gearing or positive gearing, etc.? Yeah, great question. So I'll deep dive into it for a little bit. So um, property as a whole, obviously a sound investment as an asset class. When we become a non-resident, we do miss out on concessions now uh, or some tax concessions. The first one, main residence exemption. Uh, the second one, the 50% CGT discount concession. Uh, so just being mindful that if we are a non-resident, if we are going to sell a property back in Australia, um, just calculating the tax and doing a bit of a what if. Okay, can I just pause there? Yeah. Because this is absolute gold. Let's just recap mm. the main resident exemption. Ordinarily, if I had my home, lived in it for five years, or whatever, sold it, moved to the next street, bought another home, CGT free, tax free, because I live in it. That's right. If I then want to rent for a little bit in Australia or something, mm -hmm. I've got the six year rule. Temporary absence rule. Yep. yep. So I can then, you know, sell it at year five or five and, you know, 99% and not pay any tax. So we've got the six year rule. So what you're saying is if someone kept their own property in Australia, moved overseas and stopped being a tax resident here, mm -hmm. that property instantly, there's a gain that needs to be paid with tax. Absolutely. Right. So knowing your cost base and having a plan in place before. Mm -hmm. Okay. Other side of the coin, I've been renting here, mm. rent vesting, got an investment property down the road. I want to, ordinarily, if I wanted to sell that property here and not moving overseas, I would get the 50% capital gains discount. Yes. Okay. So now that rent vester or person has moved overseas and he's now a tax resident. Mm -hmm. That property, what happens when they sell it? Yep. So because they no longer have access to the 50% CGT discount concession and backstory, that was removed back in May 2012. Right. You are still eligible for the discount up until the day that you left Australia. So part one, get a market valuation as of that date roughly to lock in the discount, the capital gain up until that date. So would you say a real estate appraisal or just something a record, maybe a, run a domain report or a real estate report and get an agent and just have some documentation? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, and you might laugh at this one. Um, so the ATO will only take an independent valuation okay. report. So you've got to pay $500, $600. Unfortunately. Yeah. Um, it's remarkable that real estates, they're licensed to sell our property, but they're not licensed to value our property mm. for tax purposes. So yeah, unfortunately. Okay, so you need to get a proper valuer to value your property and give you a report. That's right. Before you move overseas. Well, remember- Close you, as possible. As close as possible. They can done be done historically. And probably a good example would be, I did help a client do one from 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, and that cost them about $1,500. But if they had done it within say six months, it probably would have only cost them $300 back then. Right. Okay. Again, this is just good housekeeping stuff, right? That's it. Yep. Okay. So, and then if you did sell it, you know, a year later- 
the cost base starts at the value of when you left? Well, for this scenario, yeah. when it's just an investment property, yes. the capital gain will be broken up into two parts. They'll get to discount a portion of the capital gain by 50% and the other portion well, they won't be able to discount because it'll be attached to their non-residency. Right. So the portion from up until they left, that valuation will from the cost base of when they bought it to when they got the valuation, that portion they can have the discount. But anything above that, there's no CGT discount. Absolutely. Yep. But if they don't have a valuation, it might be based on the, the cost base Original when they bought base. the property. That's right. right. Yep. And most accountants... If you sell uh, in, in this scenario, they will encourage you to go out and get a market valuation yeah. um, because it usually results in a better outcome. Mm. Yeah. yeah, cool, cool, cool. Okay, so moving overseas, next one, we're not selling the property. We're just keeping an investment property on the island here. Mm -hmm. What happens, and maybe you want to talk to any other general income that's generated mm. in Australia yep. well, while I mean, you're not here? Well, the rental property, I mean, yep. we the question around negative gearing and passive, or sorry, positively geared, negative gearing can still happen. Um, you know, you can still create that income loss, but assuming no one's paying tax here on your behalf, like an employer, those losses will just accrue. Each year here yep, on right. your TFN. And just carry forward. Yep. So maybe creating a, a tax asset or I think accountants often refer to these as tax credits. That mm. They're not exactly tax credits, but no. just losses carried yep. over. Yeah. If it's positively geared, well, your income tax rate as a non-resident is higher. So we do not have a tax refresh rate. It starts at 32.5% on the first net dollar. Mm. So just an important, um, maybe important takeaway because if you're renting out maybe your former main residence and you don't know it's going to be positively geared, you've rented out for 12 months, you do your tax return, you might be a bit shocked. You go, hang on, I've got a tax payable here. I wasn't aware mm. that would even happen. Yeah, Okay. And then based on what we were saying before, as long as you've got assets in Australia outside of superannuation, be it an interest-bearing bank account, be it a, um investment property or a share portfolio or pile of shares, as long as you've got assets here, you've got to do a tax return with or without hex debt. Yeah, that's right. So the rental property, absolutely. If you've set up yourself correctly um, and you've notified share platforms, your banks, they should automatically be withholding the correct amount of tax. So interest income, 10% for non-residents. Uh, if it's uh, on shares and you're receiving unfranked dividends, it'll be 30% withholding tax. Frank dividends, shouldn't be any withholding tax. So are you saying then you wouldn't have to do a tax return? If you've set yourself up correctly, because, that's correct. Yeah, so as a practical example, if I had CBA shares, for example, and they were paying a dividend into my Australian bank account, they would just withhold the withholding rate and I would get the net amount anyway. That's right. And then I can transfer that via wise or whatever over to the country where I'm living. Exactly right. So that's where people fall short. They don't set themselves up correctly. Fail to plan, plan to fail. That's exactly right. And that's why this checklist, Yeah. Um, it's a really good starting point. Um, but what we've seen in the past is People have used family or friends' addresses even to try and keep themselves maybe compliant, but it also means that the platforms aren't withholding any tax. Mm. So then they do need to lodge a tax return because they do owe some withholding tax. Okay, so this is all making sense to me. So totally fine if you leave Australia for five years, still want to uh, send money to the island and keep investing here. 
but you just need to make sure the platform that you're using, and some apps might not do it, but other platforms may, they're withholding the right amount of tax year on year. Yes, that's right. And oh, I mean, depending on where you are going to be residing overseas, some platforms, uh, uh, I won't name any, but um, if you're in a certain country like the United States, that's an easy one. They often actually want to get you off their platform and it's because they're not signed up to common reporting standards. Mm. Um, they'll just encourage you to move over to another platform and in worst case scenarios that we've seen, they can actually restrict your account, which is, but you do get plenty of warning around that. So as an example, if someone was planning to move overseas like next year, for example, or in two years time, would you say set up your affairs now and it might be setting up a platform today that will work when you are living overseas as a non-resident here. And then you can manage the transition of perhaps selling down that platform that might not be as compliant when you're overseas. Yeah, absolutely. And make it a transition thing. Yep, absolutely. If you can, if you know that you're heading overseas next year, planning right now for that eventual expatriation, being on a, a platform that's compliant with your new overseas address, you won't have that yet because obviously no one knows their address in 12 months if they're moving overseas. But those little things can help you successfully expatriate and even keep your strategy going. Mm. So, yeah, because you'd have so many clients that are building wealth in Australia on Australian platforms. Absolutely. On Australian platforms, Australian property. Australian dollars. Australian dollars, superannuation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, all, all the main, I suppose, different pots or buckets, if you want to say, um, still back in Australia, but things just look a little bit differently because they're a non-resident. And again, you do miss out on concessions on property. You gain some on shares because they can be tax exempt. Um, and uh, it just means making sure you've got the right sort of diversified strategy whilst you're abroad. Just on super, we touched on it motherhood statements, you used to be able to leave Australia, all right, I'm stopping living here, see you later and take your super. You can't now. No, uh, you have to essentially give up your citizenship. Right. So you, if you've been on a working visa here in Australia and you're heading back home, motherland. Um, yeah, fill out the form, take your money, see you later. That's right. You can yeah. still do a DASP payment, so yeah. departing Australia, superannuation permanently. But uh, if you're a citizen, no, you can't withdraw it. Mm. Because the reason why people were going overseas, withdrawing their super, living the life over there, and then like, oh, we'll retire back in Australia at age 65 and collect uh, social security. Yeah. yeah. Age pension. That's yeah. right. Um, yeah. So can't do that anymore with the DASP payment system that's in place. Um, but I think there's always a bit of a, a huge myth, actually. There's, there's a lot of myths that go around the different expat um, community groups. And again, if you are going to head overseas, join one. Mm. Um, it's the best source of quick information, especially on the ground. Um, Just don't take the financial advice from the expat community groups or you'll get a myth like oh, this. Oh, yeah, D-Y-O-R. Um, but yeah. that being said, um, there's a few that go around. Uh, when you're transferring money back to Australia, there's always a myth about the $10,000 amount. And it is completely a myth. You can transfer 5,000, you can transfer 10,000, you can transfer a million. Um, it's not really an issue. Uh, every transaction in and out of Australia is always picked up by Oztrack regardless. Mm. If you think you're being sneaky, sending home $9,999 a few times, that just looks ridiculous. And that's what a client told me last year. And I just said, zoom out. How suspicious do you think that looks for Oztrack or the ATO? Um, so Oztrack in Australia, anything um, locally, they're pinging anything over 10k but internationally it's from zero yes yeah so yeah you, you can't get around this stuff and like there's no fear if you're doing things right not at all um and that's why we always 
go back to obviously setting yourself up correctly. If the ATO knows you're overseas already mm. and you're just sending money back to service a mortgage repayment on maybe an investment property or a former main residence, you're using that to invest in shares locally, put into super, that's good. It's giving everything an active purpose. But most expats will generally send money home, accumulate a bit of a savings and then use it to buy a property or something, whatever it might be. There was a question in the Facebook group about leaving Australia but for me, it just really goes back to that, what are your intentions? And if the intention is permanent, sure, close all your accounts, clean everything up. But if you don't know, would you say just still lean up your bank accounts, maybe have one bank account because if you've got to come back and, and whatnot, but make the call every couple of years come up for air and say, am I going back to Australia? Do I want to clean up things? Like, just talk to us about the housekeeping part. Yeah, well, you make a good point there. Every couple of years assessing, are we coming home at some point? Whenever we have our initial consults and speaking to new expats, I love asking the question, so how long are you going to be overseas for? And, um, you know, initially they might say, oh, we're just thinking, you know, three to five years. And if I'm speaking to that person in four years time, they're saying, yeah, it's probably going to be 10 years now. It's usually sort of drags out, but they know at some point they want to come back to Australia. So even with your own, I guess, investment strategy, whatever you're doing, if you're unsure, you could just consider just hedging, doing a little bit in your local country that you're in, doing a little bit back in Australia. Uh, the importance of that also is you're hedging against currency risk. Yeah. US dollar, a really good example. Look at what the US dollar has done in the last 10 years. Very attractive through COVID because obviously a safe haven appeal current, that's currency, major trade currency. It's lost a lot of value in the last four or five months. So if someone's been residing in the US and say sending some money home on a monthly basis, a bit of dollar cost averaging, then they've been very fortunate that they've taken that approach. Those that haven't really had a strategy and have just been sitting on US dollar savings, well, they've probably lost about 8% value in that currency alone in the last six months. So doing a little bit on both sides always helps if you're unsure. Okay, question. Laura Newton, just back to this bank account thing and investment properties, assume you have an investment property, you'll always have to keep an Australian bank account open forever. Well, that would be yes, because where are they going to pay the rent to? I don't think until, yeah, I just, I haven't seen any agent who will pay Neither have I. Offshore? Uh, they, yeah, you'd absolutely need a local bank account that's going to their real estate trust account and then into yep. yours. Okay. Here's a scenario. We talked about a share platform and you've said that you're no longer a resident, please withhold. What happens if you had an investment property and it was either positively geared or you owned it outright? So there was no real expenses. There was 30 grand a year income, five grand a year of some maintenance. So it was 25 grand profit from that property. Yep. What happens to that 25K? Do we have to report it as foreign income our tax residency country? Yeah, you, you most likely will, depending on the country that you're residing in though. So in the US, absolutely. You'll have to declare that as foreign sourced income. You'll have to do an investment property rental schedule in your, your federal tax return over there and probably your state. Uh, okay. So if you're living in the US, sorry to keep, I just want to- No, no, no. Yeah you would have to do the US tax return rental property schedule for your property here on the Gold Coast or- Absolutely. Okay, that sounds like a pain in the ass, but keep going. It is, but it gets more complicated because you've also got a state tax return in the US as well. Yes, Uh, some states don't have any tax, um, but I'm not going to rattle off which ones do, but yes, absolutely. So on the Australian side, the 25,000 is taxable 
you know, it's positive geared income there, 32.5%. Um, depending on where you're residing, it is very likely it'll be taxable there. If you're paying that 32.5% income tax, which if you are, you could be using that cash flow a bit better. But with that in mind, you will get a tax credit most likely for any tax you're paying to the ATO in the other country. Yes. Yeah, so you've touched on a, a thing here. So like UK, US there's like a, and probably New Zealand, a double tax treaty. So that's right. the income in Australia, I can just dump on my tax return in America or UK or whatever. What happens to that 25 grand income from the property here that there's no debt or positive and I'm living in UAE? Good question. So some countries you don't need to report foreign sourced income. So right. if you're in the UAE, well, you don't have a tax return to lodge. Um, it's, oh. it's one of those unique, unique environments. If you're a, a business, that black or, gold over there. <laughs> if you're a business, there's a, a VAT return, but that's five percent, I think. Um, but certain countries do not require you to report your foreign source income. A lot of um, Southeast Asian countries don't require you to report it. Singapore, Hong Kong, um, there's a lot. Uh, so, are we saying there can be? some free kicks depending on where you expatriate to. Is that what they say? Expatriate to? Move to? That's it. Yeah, that's yeah, correct. Yeah. Free kicks is in some areas you won't have to pay additional tax. Absolutely. You get a tax credit. Is that yeah. what you're referring to? Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yep. So, um, and it also means some countries work on the remittance basis. Mm. So, and if you're remitting that income into that local country, you would need to declare it locally and you get a tax credit for the tax paid to the ATO and depending on your marginal tax rate, might attract additional tax, might not. Um, but it really comes down to the country that you're residing in. Unfortunately, every country is different. We've got our tax rules. So what you're saying is personal financial advice is specific to each person's personal circumstances. <laughs> Absolutely. No expat is the same country, occupation. Assets, assets income. income. insurance issues, retirement planning, everything is completely different. Mm. Hey, we'll take a quick break and then we're going to come back and talk about someone who wants to stay in Australia and what they're going to do with super. We'll be back right after this. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Okay, I want to talk about superannuation. There's a couple of questions here. Danica asks, how much would you recommend putting into super while you're away for 12 months? 10% of your usual income. So number one, um, you wouldn't be considered an expat. But let's talk about that conceptually and then we'll talk about um, how to get money into super when we are an expat. Yep. If someone wants to take a 12-month holiday around the world, working holiday, and this is just from, this is what I would do personally and then maybe you can say what you'd do personally. I would personally not stress too much. I'd get settled where I'm going, get established with my income, get established with my expenses because if I'm moving to Indonesia for a year, slightly different situation, if I am working remotely or whatnot online for an Australian employer, than if I'm living and working in London. So depending where you're at. I would say we're not stressing about it. We're getting settled, we're getting a flow. That 12 months away, we want it to be a year of experiences. We want it to be a year of life. And then I think it's a judgment call. If you want to put some money in super to, and I think the 10% thing, that's a good, it's a good flag for even those who are self-employed who don't have to by law put money to super. It's a good guide. Yeah. Because we want as much money in super as possible. What would you do if you were having a 12-month sabbatical, you know, sabbatical, if you will, or you know, pouring beers in a pub in yeah. London for 12 months? Um, I think if you're quite young and you're still 15, 20 years off retirement, accessing your super, I don't think I would be encouraging it. Um, I, I wouldn't do it personally because I'm sure you could be using that cash um, probably much uh, better outside of super. The only thing I'll say though is if you've got next to no income in that 12 months, you could just do a small $1,000 and you can get the government co-contribution of 500 bucks. Yeah, there we go. That's a little gimme. A lot of expats don't know that, but remember you only get that benefit when you lodge, say, a non-resident tax return because that government co-contribution is linked to technically your tax return and most expats that might not have too much going on back in Australia, might have a rental property, might be negatively geared, if they put in $1,000 into their super, very common that they'll get the $500 government co-contribution once their tax return has been filed. Even if they're not an Australian tax resident? Correct, yeah. Wow, that's a gap. It, it is a gap. It's a very good way to put it, but don't know if it's a, a loophole or something yeah. that the ATO hasn't worked out, but a lot of our clients, if they don't have too much going on back in Australia, um, rental properties, those sort of things. But that's also just a function of the structure, like that tax return under the income threshold, like the 50, was it 49 grand or whatever yep. it is, yeah, yeah. Um, non-concessional, $1,000, just automatic, automatic. Tick, tick, tax return, tax file number linked to the super fund tax file number. Yeah, I mean, that's a good one. And I probably would say, Danica, as we're just digging on this, if you're paying for some income insurance or some insurance through your super fund, maybe as a minimum. Hmm. Offsetting. Yeah, just throw a few grand in just to cover that. Yep. At least you're not going backwards, but... You can't wreck it, but it's just more that thing of being strategic. I don't want you to turn around in five years' time and be like, oh, that year turned into five years. Now we're going back to Australia without thinking about long-term wealth building, whether that is being cash-heavy, having an investment account in Australia or super. I think it is just that, you know, if you are overseas, keep focused on your time horizons and don't let that one year turn into five years 
and not thinking about your future. And that's what happens with expats. They, yeah. The amount of conversations we have, it's like two years is the intention and we mm. get to four years and go, what have you done back in Australia? Nothing. Okay, what have you done overseas? So oh, a little bit, but we've got some cash building and we're not sure what to do. And it's like, cool, let's go through what your opportunities are back in Australia. Let's walk through sort of a bit of a discovery, what your goals are and work through it. So if I'm an expat, we know when I'm an Australian resident for tax purposes, living and working here, and I'm a citizen, I put money into super pre-tax through my employer, 15% will come off for the tax and it's effectively a tax deduction. Yep. All right. When I'm overseas, you can't put in concessional pre-tax contributions. Well, well sorry, as a non-tax resident of Australia. You can, but you've got to really ask yourself why. Like, well, you've got nothing to offset. That's right. The only time you might consider it is if there's other income that you're trying to offset back in Australia to reduce paying 30 to 1.5% tax on. So just give us an example on that. Like, because I actually thought that you couldn't do concessional contributions, but it's probably just because I'm you know, not really in the expat world. Mm. It's more, as you said, why would you? But can you give us an example? Well, I mean, contributing to super through a lot of the expat community groups, it's still a myth. A lot of expats think they can't do anything with super. Mm. With a pre-tax contribution, a concessional contribution, so annual cap right now, 27500 the most common form of using that contribution is offsetting some sort of other income. So a really good example would be, hypothetically, you're renting out your former main residence back in Australia. It's positively geared. It's got, you've just done the tax return for the first year and the net income's $10,000. And the accountant's going, hey, listen, you've got a 3,250 tax bill. That's that 32.5%. In the next financial year, you could put that net income, that 10,000 into your super, lodge what's called an S290. Uh, and that's essentially claiming that contribution is a tax deduction. You won't have that 3,250 tax bill because the tax comes out at 15% through your super. So you've had one asset paying into your retirement asset and you're preventing, I guess, tax leakage. Yeah. And that's why, you know, it is about lining up your ducks. That's right. Before you go and getting a bit of a strategy happening. Mm -hmm. Camille, g'day. How are you? As a French expat, so we're doing the old flipperoo reverse here, uh, a French expat in Australia, but planning on staying here. What's your recommendation to catch up on super? She arrived here at 30. We don't know how old Camille is. That's right. But what's your, like, what is your motherhood statement on catching up? Catching up. Well, there's a few different ways you can catch up for super. I mean, one of the most obvious is salary sacrificing. And there's two ways you can do that, whether it's through your pay each week or each month, or you do it at the end of the financial year, just before 30th of June, and you put an amount in and you decide whether you're going to claim that as a tax deduction or it's going to be a non-concessional uh, contribution or a post-tax uh, contribution. The caveat is being mindful of your income level. Um, there's what's called division uh, 293 tax where your income is high. Salary sacrificing is probably the most common one just to play catch up over say a five to 10 year period. So putting a little bit more into super each year, that's a, that's a really common one. After tax contributions, you've got a very large contribution cap there, 110,000. Um, it might sound boring, but that's the quickest way that you can play catch up. Absolutely. 
what I would probably say, and it, it might even be like, what would you tell someone that it's leaving Australia? Because the principles are the same, right? Mm. And I, I would often say this to uh, clients of mine. Yeah. It's like, okay, we're calling Australia home now. You need to set up your life. If the desire is to buy a home, well, let's forget, quote unquote, catching up on super. Yeah. Let's save a home deposit. Let's get into a home. Let's get these big rocks established. I think the other thing as you could do as a practical guide, uh, Camille, would be like 30-year-old average super balance, a website, and we might put a link to a website of some averages from, um, I forget the website, but we'll, we'll put one in the show notes. It could be like 30-year-old, male, female, whatever. If it's at $100,000 and you've got $20,000 in there, well, you might go, I have a personal goal to get my super up to what most people would have it. But I'm not doing that until I get my life established. Yes. Having said that as well, it's different because I know people who have moved to Australia and they've sold property or they've had share platforms overseas. They're bringing the wealth down. That's when it comes to strategy as well. Do we say, well, we'll put 20% into a home loan, put the balance into super, uh, there's, I think if you get good personal advice, you just can't wreck it. If you're staying out of consumer debt, keeping your spending under control, being intentional, being focused. Mm, absolutely. And I mean, it, it is the reverse side for Camille. She's come back. We don't know what other assets she might have overseas and she's shoehorning them back into Australia. But I agree with you where superannuation might not be the priority right now. Mm. Getting the main residence might be, or an investment property, something that's outside of super. Yeah. So definitely assessing that. Because that's that whole mindset of I'm living on less than I earn and I'm investing the rest. Mm -hmm. Now, that's all well and good to say, but I need to buy a house first or I want to work on my career first. Absolutely. And with Camille's query there, I think it also comes down to when you look at sort of the goals and objectives, but accessing funds as well. Um, in the event you're investing all your surplus, if you're putting it in super, in the event of an emergency, you can't access that usually. It's, mm. So it's being mindful around that, establishing emergency funds, spending plan, those sort of things where you're not putting everything into super if your one goal is super and you're quite young by the sounds of it as well. Mm. Now, if you do move overseas and I'm just thinking about super and you want to keep your Australian citizenship and be a resident overseas, and then you do turn 60, you can then access the money in Australia if you're not working. Absolutely. Superannuation is agnostic regardless of your residency. It's treated the exact same way. So if you're accessing it under just being 60 and fully retired, yep, tax-free income stream or lump sum withdrawal, whatever. Yep. And that's why, you know, the older you get, the more assets you accumulate. And particularly if you have assets sprinkled all over the world, uh, like we've had listeners who have got assets on three continents, right? Yeah. So it is just a bit of a, a strategy, right? That's right. Yep, absolutely. There's a question here from Rebecca and she said it might be out of scope. No, it's not, Rebecca. It's in scope. But I'd love to hear about things to consider when trying to refinance while living overseas. Now, this, it's a personal interest to me only because I'm interested, not because I'm moving overseas and wanting to refinance. So Rebecca will make a scenario up. She might have moved to UK, US, has an investment property here in Australia, $500,000 of debt. We'll say it's worth a million dollars to keep it really simple, 50% LVR. Um, can get a sharper rate with another lender. 
will another lender touch it if she isn't a tax resident here? They, they will. However, and there is no universal rule here just because every lender's got its own credit guide, unfortunately. Um, but even if we just zoom out again, depending on the country that she's working in, some countries with some providers, they're sort of considered gold tier with the currency that she's paid in. Right. So if you're in a country which is exotic, a lot of providers won't like that because they don't see the currency that you paid in very attractive and therefore volatile. US dollar, pound, all the majors, they're, they're usually generally pretty fine. The way you're assessed in Australia is that generally speaking, they'll take your wage income, they'll apply normal Australian tax rates to that and see what your serviceability is on top of say your HEM. Um, and that's just generally your, your minimum living standards each month. That being said, though, because you are an expat, sometimes the rate that they offer you is a little bit more than, say, your counterpart that's back in Australia, same work, same occupation, same income level, but they layer your rate with just a bit of risk. Yeah, yeah. So it, it is possible? Yes, absolutely. We, and, and I would encourage anyone to shop around, not just use you know, your traditional big four bank that you're aligned with. Um, and I only say that because- but you go to a mortgage broker should be able to eat this. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, mortgage broker, absolutely. And I only say that because we've come across um, previous clients' uh, interest rates in the past. And even when interest rates were low, they were still 5 6%. And we were just baffled. Um, and we encouraged them and helped them switch over. But shop around right now. It's a very competitive interest rate market because everyone's trying to outprice each other because naturally interest rates are going up. Mm. Um I'm not the biggest advocate for fixed rates right now, but yeah. um, I'm more variable. Personally, my loans are variable, um, but um, shop around. But yes, as an expat, you definitely still can get a loan back in Australia. You can refinance, absolutely. Um, more difficult types of expats would be the self-employed. Mm. And I only say that because you're the credit provider or the loan assessor, they'll still want to see two years worth of tax returns in that country. And sometimes that needs to be certified as well. Right. Okay. So they could, but this all goes back to just, you know, lining up your ducks where possible before you take off. That's right. And we'll finish with this anonymous question and we have skirted around it, but we'll, we'll just talk to it. Uh, my wife is a doctor and wants to do a transitional year abroad before finishing her training. We'll end up all moving and spend a year in the UK or Canada before coming back here. I'd like to keep my job and continue to be paid in Australian dollars into an Australian account. We own two investment properties here. Is there anything in particular we should slash shouldn't do to minimise tax impacts of being outside the country for a year? E.g. does it make a difference when in the year specifically that we move and return relative to financial year beginning and ending? So that one there, it's a question of where's... Like, because the theme that I'm getting is, is your tax residency following you or is it staying here? Absolutely. I think on the surface, saying only 12 months, I would say- It's an international any, holiday. <laughs> any account would pick that up and go, great, you're still a tax resident of Australia. So all the normal rules still apply to you. Mm. Um, the probably other concern is if uh, the wife is doing a transitional year and is working overseas while he's still working back in Australia, the risk that might- You'll definitely need some advice on this scenario, but she's not technically cutting ties with Australia either because it's only 12 months. So yeah. that would mean she would have to declare that income to the ATO as well. Yeah. Look. It's a difficult one, that one. It is. I, 
And I think he might be confused or unsure because in Australia, there's no joint filings. There isn't. But in the US, there is. Correct. Yep. So that probably needs some specialist advice. Once you, But also, special advice, once you actually know what country and what timeline. That's right. And with that scenario, it will definitely pay to seek advice before you're going. And then with that accountant or whoever, they might actually say, listen, let's wait till you're overseas. Let's wait till you're over there for at least six months. And if it is only going to be 12 months, well, we have our heading in terms of how you should be treated. Yes. Now, for someone like Mr. Anonymous here, does your business or your accountants here, would they do like a, you know, a general advice session or something where someone can pay you guys just to like chat for an hour or so without formal advice and the whole dance? Yeah, absolutely. We do do paid consults um, where it is essentially getting a a bit of an understanding of his situation first, the specific queries and concerns that you have, because there could be a lot. Mm. And then we shoehorn that into a one hour paid consult. Usually it's on Zoom. So we record the Zoom. That way you got access to that after. And then ideally just some actual easy advice that you can follow going forward. Mm. Um, Obviously general advice disclaimer, absolutely. Um, if it's a case where you need more personal financial advice, where we're talking about financial products and other things alike. Yeah, you can scope up and quote for that work. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's what I would encourage anyone, like all of you who listen to My Millennial Money, you do value professionals and you will pay, um, but definitely uh, check out Atlas Wealth website. I can't stress enough, this like three page checklist for the pre and post departure, it's just such good value and it will really just help you having a framework. And then what you might do, you get that PDF download, get the, the things that it suggests, put it in a spreadsheet, and then start to keep status. Some other practical things. Would you say if someone's thinking about moving overseas in 12 months, start to have some type of record or a spreadsheet of all your addresses and all the organizations that you work with and oh absolutely start getting your ducks in a row i just moved house up the road an hour it's freaking a pain in the ass i'm getting like oh stop sending you mail and all this stuff i'm the same i uh i'll be moving house very soon and i've got a PO box i've had a PO box for about 10 years for my personal side i'll be getting rid of that but then i've also got my old address Mm -hmm. and just playing cleanup is hard and it's not a case that when you leave you'll you'll keep a PO box going because who's going to check it unless you've got family and friends that are that fond. Mm. Um, but yes, start doing a bit of a cleanup right now and if you are doing a bit of a cleanup, I would absolutely encourage at least an initial consult or advice from someone just about the fact that you are going to be an expat, what's going to happen to your assets, your income streams, how's that going to be treated and even generally how it might be treated in your new country. Mm. So there you go. Well, we might leave it there. It's been a fascinating discussion. I've certainly, my curiosity has been piqued. And that's P-I-Q-U-E-D. Is that how they say it? I don't know. I think so. Someone look that up. It's not piqued. It's piqued. Piqued. Look, James Ridley from Atlas Wealth, atlaswealth.com. They help all of you all around Australia, all around the world. And particularly if you are looking to come back down, and you want some re-entry advice, or you are looking at um, moving away, building wealth here in Australia, or you've got existing wealth and you need a trusted uh, professional team, 
who actually lives and breathes this stuff because realistically, it's such a specialty. I don't send anyone who reaches out for help to a, an, a garden variety financial advisor who works with Aussies mm. and tax residents. Mm. I'll send them straight to your team because it's just your thing. We appreciate it. And I mean, further to that, I'm doing a webinar with a bunch of financial advisors tomorrow morning in the US to help them. Oh, <laughs> so. wow. Train the trainer. Look at that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> everything helps, uh, whatever can help them. Now, tell us about the Atlas Wealth podcast that you do. Yeah, well, we, we run a few. So we've got Expat Chat. And this expat chat is mainly designed for expats, which you guys are just flying the wall and it's me and Brett, um, the other director, just rambling away, things to know and consider. Um, the topics are mainly driven by our clients and everyone that's in our, our own little Facebook group. And essentially, it's just flavor of the month, flavor of the week, what's going on. Um, the other one that we run is expat mortgages, and that's just with Jeremy. He looks after our mortgage side and it's just all the questions that we often get about how lenders look at you as an expat, uh, things to bear in mind. Mm. Uh, and then only recently we've just kicked off Atlas Weekly Recap, which is more of a financial one yeah. uh, for our clients. Yeah, there you go. Thank you so much, James Ridley and Atlas Wealth. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me. See ya. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports a variety of charities, and we encourage you to consider giving as part of your overall financial strategy. If you would like some giving options, or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to mymillennial.money forward slash charities for more info. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.